The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome to the first afternoon of our daily life practice non-residential retreat. Um, The form of this retreat, uh, this afternoon, as I just said, I'll offer some um, tools for helping you to connect with the mindfulness practice in the midst of your day. So this retreat, in terms of daily life practice, is about learning how to connect with mindfulness in the middle of everything that we're doing. So uh, we're, we're we're used to cultivating mindfulness when we're sitting silently on the cushion, but not so used to cultivating mindfulness when we're in the midst of our daily lives. And we um, sometimes we don't get very much in the way of instructions in that. And so I created this retreat for that purpose, to help to create a container and some practices that support your actually uh, remembering and exploring what it means to be mindful as you're talking to friends, as you're working on your computer, as you're chopping vegetables, as you're driving your car, all of our normal everyday activities. And so that's what I'm offering this afternoon, um, some tools and techniques for supporting that. Um, The format of the week this afternoon will... I'll talk a little bit, um, and we'll start the, the afternoon with refuges and precepts. And I, I'm curious, how many of you are going to come during the week, planning to come to participate during the week? Okay, as much as you can. I know that it's, uh, it's not always possible to come every day, but um, um, that's why I allow this particular form to be flexible that way. So as much as you can. Um, if you can show up each morning and each evening, some some people do, uh, um, and it really does create the container for a retreat. It's quite powerful, actually, to um, to have the reminder of coming back to this group. That's a piece of the tool. It's a piece. Of, it's a piece of how you remember. Actually, people commented about this at the last retreat that you know they'd be thinking about, well, what am I going to be doing tomorrow? And they'd remember, oh, I'm going back to IMC in the morning for the for the retreat, and that would help them be mindful. So the if you do commit to coming more frequently, it supports your practice in daily life. So the the form being this. Um, uh, morning and evening sessions during the week, and the um, I'll talk later about what will happen in those sessions. It'll it'll be uh, a lot of um, conversation about what you're noticing in exploring the practices in daily life. I find that the conversation is what creates the juice for what we end up talking about. And then on Saturday we'll have the day long, as I said, about um, a practice of kind of a more open, receptive awareness practice that can be used either on the cushion or off the cushion. Um, but some kind of stability of practice in daily life is supportive at times to begin to use that practice, that, uh, that receptive awareness practice. We have to remember in order to do it. And so the tools that I offer this week are partly tools to help you remember. And so because we're... Um, we're doing a retreat. I like to begin this afternoon with um, entering into 
the container of retreat, much as the way we do um, on on residential retreat, taking the refuges and precepts. So that kind of sets a container of of simplicity and ethics uh, for for our time together this week. So we'll start this afternoon with with um, a little bit of discussion about the refuges and precepts, and take the refuges and precepts together. And then we'll sit together. Then we'll have a time, some time for walking. And then we'll um, uh, come back and I'll start talking about the, uh, the practices for daily life, some of the reminders that I offer for remembering to be mindful in daily life. So is this anybody's first time to IMC? Everybody's been here before. Okay, great. Um, so you know the, you know the layout. You know where the bathrooms are. You know where the kitchen is. You know how it works here. Um, when, since I am recording, if um, at a point when it comes to discussion, use the mics, um, and we'll uh, we'll decide later whether uh, we can post this or are comfortable posting this for public um, consumption or uh, just for um, this group. So for refuges and precepts, you know, really we can think about the refuges and the precepts as a, a foundational container in which the practice unfolds. The refuges are a kind of an orientation of our Dharma practice to be um, grounded in the teachings and practices of the Buddha and the Dharma and to be... Um, connected to a community that explores these practices. So the, uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are the three refuges. A refuge is a word that means safety. Um, we go to a refuge for safety. So I'd just like to talk for a couple of minutes around how these three Areas, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha might be um, considered or support you to feel a sense of safety in your practice, in your life. And to do that, we, we might want to reflect a little bit on what we normally go to for safety. Where do we normally find or search for safety? And how reliable is it? So often we are going for safety in our um, in our in our um, having things or being in relationship with people or having certain jobs, and so we we go for refuge or we kind of think we're safe or search for safety in those areas. And there's certain ways in which they provide us a kind of safety a kind of stability. To have a home certainly provides us a stability that a homeless person doesn't have. To to have a relationship for some provides a stability of support. Um, To have a job certainly provides a stability or a safety of being able to uh, take care of oneself. And so there are ways in which those things are refuges for us. But they are... Uh, being what they are, they are kind of an unreliable refuge, and we we kind of know this, you know. In a in a relationship, for instance, you know, 
one of the partners could uh, get cancer or be killed in a car accident, and then that that refuge is is gone. Or uh, and you know in uh, in New Orleans the the uh, the floods of Katrina wiped out so many people's homes. And again, so relying on them as a form of absolute safety isn't, uh, it's not a place we can land and say, yes, this is a place of absolute safety. And so the, the Buddha in his journey actually was exploring where might there be more safety? What might actually really, uh, allow me to, uh, to not be buffeted around by the, um, the, the conditions of the world. And so in his journey, he, he explored that possibility and he found for himself this capacity to be awake. And that's what Buddha means, is awake. The capacity to be awake and the cultivation of that capacity, which is what he taught in his teachings, which is what the Dharma is. So the Buddha basically represents our capacity to be awake, our capacity to meet experience. And the Dharma is a a teaching that helps us understand what is it in our... um, What is it in our way that we navigate our lives that uh, has us kind of getting stuck or caught over and over again? into stress, into confusion, into struggle, into suffering. Now this is this kind of stress, confusion, struggle, suffering isn't the, um, the kind of the objective uh, things that happen in our lives. You know, the, 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 the hurricanes and the earthquakes and the diagnoses of cancer and the breakups of relationships, those things will happen. So this isn't the refuge that that the Buddha explored wasn't a safety from all of that stuff happening. But what it is essentially is a, a refuge that the mind can stay balanced and can basically hold its hold its stability in the midst of whatever happens. This this is a place of equanimity, a place of balance of mind that can um, kind of not, well, well, it's kind of like it will receive and respond to what happens in the world, but not be rigid and break or uh, react out of greed or aversion or confusion when things happen. And so the, the suffering that the Buddha pointed to, the possibility of being free from, was the reactivity to what goes on. The, uh, the anger, the confusion, the hatred, the, the, um, the, the pride, the arrogance, the wanting, the, all of the ways that we you know, want to be seen a certain way or want not to be in presence of certain things that we don't like. All of these um, things that create stress in our lives. And so this is the freedom that the Buddha pointed to as being a true refuge that we can be like a very stable um, uh, sometimes it, sometimes the description is like a very stable tree 
that is not um, overwhelmed by anything. So the this is this is a truer kind of refuge and. Part of the purpose of our meditation practice is to begin to point us in the direction. The, the teachings of the Buddha um, are about waking up. So that capacity to be awake is a crucial tool in our uh, exploring this meeting of the world. When, we are, when we're not awake to meet the world, we will be in a kind of a reactive mode. You know, we, we go through our lives so much with a um, kind of a habitual response to what's going on. And that habitual response all usually happens below the level of our conscious awareness. You know, we, something happens and we're speaking, saying something we regret or we're doing something out of habit rather than really being clearly conscious of it. So the, uh, the, one of the main tools is this waking up and the capacity to wake up. That's, that's what I like to connect with in terms of refuge in the Buddha. We may not always be awake, but we can kind of remind ourselves this capacity exists simply because I'm a human being. This is a natural part of being human that we have this capacity to know what's happening while it's happening. Mindfulness is an ordinary capacity in, in our human experience. And so it's not something separate or something that we have to find outside of ourselves. It is a part of who we are. And the Buddha, I think, was brilliant in pointing to it as being this is really useful. This is a really useful tool to cultivate. And then that awareness or that awake quality is pointed in a particular direction. And this is the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. It's pointed in the direction of understanding what creates suffering in our lives. Not just that, you know, not just that, yeah, I, I get upset when things are unpleasant around me or I want to hold on to things that are pleasant, but th- that, that very upsetness or that reactivity is itself a kind of suffering. And that the, uh, the Dharma points to that as being what we is helpful to, to notice and to pay attention to. That understanding how stress is created in our minds, understanding how uh, suffering is created, what we might call optional suffering. You know, if, if there's something that happens, like we cut ourselves with a knife, there's going to be unpleasant situation. You know, it's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. That's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about here. The body is designed to feel pain when it gets damaged. So the, uh, the, the exploration we make is around the reactivity to the unpleasant. The reactivity to the pleasant, the wanting to hold on to the pleasant, the wanting to get rid of the unpleasant, and the way that constricts the mind, the way it, it tightens us up and keeps us from being flexible and responsive. We become reactive instead. So the, the way that we explore or the, the direction uh, that we cultivate awareness is to be curious about stress and suffering. 
to be curious about how it's created. This is really the first noble truth. The, the dharma we could express in terms of the four noble truths, the truth that there is suffering. We, we all experience suffering. Maybe not every single moment of our lives, but during our lives, there will be this kind of stress and suffering. And so the, uh, that's, that's the first noble truth, that that is a truth of life. And then the, the, the kind of suffering that we can become free of is created by a craving, a kind of a constriction, a wanting things to be a certain way, rather than really acknowledging this is how they are. And so that, that wanting or that kind of constriction around wanting to be, things to be a certain way, that's a, a core source for the stress and the suffering in our lives. And then the possibility, the Buddha talked about the possibility of being free from suffering, free from that craving. And that doesn't mean that we, you know, just become these non-responsive creatures, you know, that sometimes there's a, there's a kind of a misunderstanding around the, the, this balance of mind, the equanimity, the, the true refuge, in, in effect, is this refuge in uh, a mind that can be balanced and non-reactive, a refuge in that uh, possibility. Um, that person who is balanced is able to receive the mess of the world and the beauty of the world and doesn't just simply sit there saying, oh, oh, that's how things are, okay. You know, it, it responds. The, the heart that is, has this balance is responsive. It responds to suffering with compassion and wants to act to alleviate that compassion. It responds to someone who is experiencing happiness and joy with a kind of a resonant joy. And so it's not a flat, empty, dull place, this place of balance of mind. What it's free of is anger and hatred and confusion and desire and constriction and craving. From our perspective, so much I think our perspective around um, doing things in the world you know, is based on that craving. We want something, so we do it. We want to get rid of something, so we take some action. So much of the way that we habitually act in the world is based on reactivity. And so it's hard for us to fathom if that reactivity went away, why we would do anything. And so this is a little bit of a leap of faith, actually. You know, we think, if I didn't want to do it, if I didn't, like, you know, have some kind of craving, why would I do anything? Compassion motivates us to act. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an, an, uh, an agency to compassion, and there's an agency to love, and there's an agency to wisdom. These qualities of mind, there's a, a kind of a, an impulse to do based on those qualities that is not based on constriction. We might call that wanting, but we could also just call it intention. So the 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 place of a you know landing in this true refuge 
isn't a place of safety where we're kind of boxed off from the world and not interacting and not acting in the world. It is a place where we can be more fully acting in the world, partly because we're not so closed down. We're not so constricted around our fears and our confusions and our desires. So this is really the true refuge that the Buddha was talking about, this possibility of having this balance of mind. So the, we, the, the capacity to awake is our key tool. How we use that awakeness is the Dharma. And then the community of practitioners that we uh, connect with. You know, this, this kind of practice, it's not easy to do by oneself. <laughs> and I think you'll find, especially if you come during the week, the, the, the level of support that happens when practicing in community, you know, especially for a week like this, there will be a, 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 a sense of the support and the refuge, essentially, that we get from each other because we hear each other committed to practicing. That supports us in our practice. And so these are the refuges in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. They are um, um, point us in a, the direction of a more reliable refuge, which ultimately is that capacity to be balanced in whatever is happening. And then the, um, the precepts is about kind of an ethical container. Yeah. Uh, when you listed them <coughs> sequentially, do they have to be? You know, like first there was the capacity to meet life, then the, the owner's manual, Dharma, uh, the community. Like you went, okay, first I need this, and then that, and then that. Could you cultivate it in any order? Well, they, they really are interwoven mm-hmm. strands. Sometimes the, the refuges are related to... Um, um, the, the, the Buddha is kind of like a doctor who makes a diagnosis and, and points to the possibility. And the, the Dharma is like our uh, prescription <laughs> for healing. And the Sangha is like our caretakers. And they, they all work together. And, you know, it might be that any one of them could be kind of in the foreground at a particular time. I wouldn't think that, don't think that necessarily cultivating them one by one in that way, but they, they kind of interweave and support each other. And I've, I myself have found at various times when um, I feel like, and this, you can just play with this at certain times during the, during the week. If you feel like support is helpful, you know, just reflecting on it, it might just be that in this room, what you feel is the support of the community, and so that's kind of the refuge in the sangha, or the support of the sangha. Or there might be other times when you are, you know, uh, doing something and bringing the practice to bear on something, and you recognize, wow, this is the dharma. The dharma is so helping me right now, and and so it's more. I I find it more helpful in daily life and in our practice to kind of recognize what. What is supporting me in this moment? And it, it may have one of those flavors, but we don't have to kind of um, try to cultivate them one by one. Yeah. 
So the precepts are, um, are, are kind of the grounding in ethics that we, um, the, we explore. The Buddha taught in the fourth noble truth, the, um, the uh, right speech, right action, as kind of framing and right livelihood as a framing for our, our ethics. And the, the ethics can be kind of distilled to five basic principles that we um, explore in our daily lives and in, well, in our lives as a whole. And these are um, refraining from taking life, refraining from taking what is not given, uh, refraining from um, sexual, creating harm through using our sexuality or sexual misconduct, uh, refraining from false speech, and refraining from intoxicants. And my, the way I hold the precepts is more as an exploration, as a, a kind of a, they, they almost are like wake-up bells. They remind me if I'm um, going to take an action is this in line with these precepts? So um, I, 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 I prefer to hold them as, and in fact the word precept means, the, the Pali word, sikapadang, means training rule or training guideline, something like that. So it is, it is a, it's something that we take up as a, as a training the Buddha pointed to these as being really useful. If what we're trying to explore is how to end stress and suffering in our own lives, then all of these, in their own way, point to ways that stress and suffering will be created in relationship and in our own uh, experience if we don't follow them. And so they're, they're more kind of practical, in my view. It's not, it's not so much moral or moralistic or kind of judgmental from on high. It's more of a, you know, if you want to understand suffering in your own life and understand how suffering works in the world, it's probably helpful to do the best you can in refraining from creating suffering in the world. And so that's a way to explore these, these precepts. Um, I'm not going to go into detail. I could give a 45-minute talk on the precepts, but, but to just hold them as reflections for us. During this week, you might explore for the um, refraining from taking life what it might mean to not um, kill the spiders in your house or uh, not too many mosquitoes right now, but you know, uh, to, to, to just refrain from from taking life. At one point, I was visiting my father, my, my parents, and, and um, um, he was getting ready to kill a wasp on the wall. And I said, oh, wait, you know, let me catch it and take it outside. And he said, it'll sting you. And I said, no, no, watch to see how I do this. And I took a bowl and I put it over the wasp and I took a piece of paper and put it behind that and took the wasp outside and let it go. And, um, and a little while later, uh, I came back home and there had been a, 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 a gecko running around in the house or a lizard, some kind of lizard running around in the house. And, and we came home one day and there was a bowl on the counter 
And my mom asked my father, what's this bowl? Why is it here? And, and my dad said, that was the bowl I used to catch the lizard to take it outside. And, and I thought, wow, you know, that, that, that just that, that little gesture of mine had an impact. So, you know, it's a, don't take these, these, these are not small things, actually. You know, they, they, um, they impact our heart as we explore following through on these. Taking, uh, refraining from taking what's not given. I mean, most of us aren't going to go out and like rob a bank or something, but there might be small ways in which, you know, if, if you're at work, you know, remembering what is offered at work and what is, what is meant to be used at work. Um, you know, I would, I would find myself at times, you know, having accidentally, in ways, you know, carried many pens home from work. And it's like, oh, these, these weren't exactly offered, you know, should I, you know, take them back? So, uh, so this kind of thing to explore, you know, it, it, it kind of is a way, in a way, the precepts are a, um, a tool to help us wake up in daily life. We, we, we can begin to reflect on Am I acting in line with these guidelines? Refraining from sexual misconduct in the, in the suttas, this basically uh, refers to refraining from adultery. But we can also look at how do we use our sexuality? Are we using it in a way to get something? Or um, uh, are we unaware of the impact of our sexuality? Are we not paying attention to the impact of our sexuality on others? in a way that might somebody else might be uncomfortable with. And so exploring it in a little bit of a deeper way. Refraining from false speech is a huge practice in daily life. Actually, we can take the, the precept around speech and expand it a little bit. And some of you may choose to explore this some this week. Um, the, the, the precept includes the precept on refraining from speaking falsely. Um, the... Uh, the noble truth of why speech is a little broader. It includes refraining from harmful speech, hurtful speech, uh, or uh, harsh speech, um, divisive speech, and idle chatter as well. And so, you know, to, to, to one of my teachers, Sairo Tejaniya, said at one point he decided to take those extra three speech precepts and add them into his daily life so that he refrained from harsh speech and divisive speech in his daily life and refrained from idle chatter in his daily life. And he said, at that point, my mindfulness really started picking up in daily life. So we can, we can explore that, you know, the possibility of uh, Mindfulness of wise speech, essentially. Wise speech is not the theme I've picked up for this week, but some of you may find it uh, interesting and useful to explore. And again, I, I look at these as not being like, you know, thou shalt not speak idle speech, for instance. You know, um, there's, one, um, there's one teaching in one of the commentaries to the Buddhist text that talks about uh, when various aspects of our being, the things we do, when they fall away during the course of our uh, spiritual growth. And idle speech, it talks about idle speech, and it says that's like one of the last things to go away. 
It, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't go away until full, you're fully awakened. And so, you know, we are going to be engaging in idle speech. But again, you know, can, can you use it as a wake-up bell? Is this idle speech serving some purpose? Because there are ways that in daily life especially, we may find that um, a little bit of kind of what might be seem, seem idle or, un, you know, a kind of less deep conversation. You know, the first time you meet somebody, you're not going to enter right into deep conversation. So you need to kind of find some, uh, some ground to, to talk. And so sometimes the, the, what seems on the surface or what we might judge is that thou shalt not commit idle speech. <laughs> you know, what seems on the surface is idle speech has a, more, a deeper underlying purpose. And so the, the intention underlying our actions is one of the more important places to explore with the precepts. And then the, the last one around um, refraining from intoxicants. Um, teachers talk about this in different ways. Some people, some teachers speak about it as um, refraining from intoxicating oneself. Uh, so, and so some, some teachers say that you're not breaking the precept if you have a, a glass of wine and you don't get intoxicated from that. Um, I like to encourage you to explore it for yourself. Um, for myself, I picked this up as an exploration pretty early in my practice where I didn't just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop. I'm going to not drink. I didn't do it that way. I just got curious about what happens when I have a glass of wine. And uh, I pretty quickly discovered the lingering impact of even a glass of wine where I didn't get intoxicated. It had an impact on my capacity to be fully aware. It impacted my meditation that evening. It impacted my meditation the next morning. I was shocked. And so with that, I began to recognize that for myself, I valued clarity of mind more than I valued the, the pleasure of the glass of wine. And so for me, it was a very natural falling away. But I did it as an exploration. I didn't just say, okay, I'm going to be the kind of person who doesn't, I'm going to, to follow this letter to the letter of the law. I just made the exploration. And very naturally, the, 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 um, I discovered that the, the reasons for drinking a glass of wine were, one, I really liked the way it tastes, and two, it created uh, a little bit of relaxation. Those two reasons, you know, I got much more, I got more clarity and relaxation with the mindfulness, actually, than I got with the glass of wine. And the taste was just, you know, well, yeah, I for, I've, I've let go of that. It's... Uh, it's a small thing in comparison to the benefits that I've had from not drinking the alcohol. So for me, that was my exploration and my choice. For you, I think you need to make that exploration yourself. It might be interesting for some of you, you could play with it, to see what happens this week if you let go of drinking alcohol or wine or whatever other intoxicants you use. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, uh, it's um, just to see, see what happens for you. Or maybe do the exploration the way I did it. You know, how does it impact you? 
So I will let you decide how you wish to um, hold that precept. So what I'd like to do now is to take the refuges and the precepts together. And we'll, we'll do this in the... For the refuges, we'll do it in the kind of... Uh, the familiar way of chanting. Uh, we'll use the Pali language. And I'll do this in call and response. How many of you have not ever chanted the refuges before? So few of you. Okay. So this is um, uh, the, the Pali language. It's basically um, the language that was... As close as we know, the language that was used around the time of the Buddha, so it reflects a kind of a lineage, a tradition back to uh, to the Buddha. The words are simple for the refuges. The first sentence, which we'll repeat three times, is basically an homage to the Buddha. It's basically um, expressing appreciation that the Buddha woke up and uh, gave his teachings to the world. So that, that, that phrase is namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. And I'll do that one uh, word at a time. And then refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Um, Buddhang, Buddha. Saranang means um, refuge. And gachami means walk towards. So Buddhang, Saranang, gachami. I walk towards the Buddha for refuge. Or I go to Buddha, the Buddha for refuge. Um, Dhammang, saranangachami. I, w- I walk to the Dharma for refuge. Sangang, saranangachami. I walk to the Sangha for refuge. And then we do it a second time with the, the word dutiampi in front, which means basically for the second time. And then a third time we use the word tatiampi, which means for the third time I go to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha for refuge. So um, we'll chant this. We'll do this um, call and response. So I'll chant a few words and then you respond. Namo tasa, namo tasa, bhagavato, arahato, samma sambuddhasa, Namo tasa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Samma Sambuddhasa, Namo tasa, Bhagavato, Arahato, Samma Sambuddhasa, Budang, Saranang, Gachami. Now I'll do the whole line. Dhammang, Saranang, Gachami. Sangang, Saranang, Gachami. Dutiampi. Budang Saranangachami Gachami Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangachami Dutiampi Sangang Saranangachami Tatiampi 
Budang Saranangachami Tatiampi Damang Saranangachami Tatiampi Sangang Saranangachami And then we'll take the precepts together in English. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from creating harm through my sexuality. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. For the sake of our practice together, I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicants, intoxicants, which cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So thank you for entering into that this container of refuge and ethics for our week together. So let's stand up for a minute. We'll, we'll do a sitting in just a, just a moment. So let's just stand up and give your body a little bit of a break.